day and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. In the next few episodes, we'll be continuing the story of Ned and the Kelly Gang, Victorian bushrangers from the 1870s. But if this is the first Australian History Podcast you have downloaded, let me just mention we are now making our way through the Kelly history in a chronological order so it might be to your advantage to listen to the earlier episodes before listening to this one. Episode 2 will give you an overview of the entire story, if you'd like that total view, but if you'd like to begin at the beginning with the in-depth stories, start listening at Episode 3, Beverage, where the Kelly story starts looking at Ned's parents and his birth. Last time, in Episode 3, we had a look at the Kelly family background and at Ned's early childhood. We left the story when Ned was about eight or nine and the family were relocating to Avenel, north of Beveridge. This week, in episode four, we'll explore what turned out to be pretty much the remainder of Ned's childhood there, as several momentous events took place in Avenel and eventually led to a different direction for the Kelly family. In January of 1864, Avenel was a thriving village on the busy Sydney Road, 75 miles northeast of Melbourne, that's around 120 kilometres. The township straddled Hughes Creek and was otherwise on a flat plain, surrounded by hills and the nearby Mount Barnard. With a permanent population of around 200, Avenel Township boasted around 30 shops and houses, a police station and courthouse, a school and two pubs, the Avenel Arms, and the Royal Mail, which was owned by the Shelton family. Red Kelly, turning his back on the difficult and now dangerous environment at Beveridge, Victoria, moved his family north to Avenel and set himself up on a rented 40-acre farm on the western fringe of town. That acreage is now bordered by the present-day Veerings Road, Ewing Road, Ferguson Street and Howell Street in Avenel, if you're interested though no buildings remain there from the Kelly era. A Ned Kelly Touring Route information board stands on the Ewing Road corner. As always, I will put some supporting links and materials for this episode on the Australian Histories Podcast webpage at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. In the years since Ned was born, while the Kellys were living near their extended families around Wallen and Beveridge, Red and Ellen had had many dealings with the law, mostly as witnesses to the charges of others. Ellen's brother Jimmy had been charged with cattle and horse stealing, and assault. Brother Jack was also charged with cattle stealing, and then robbery under arms. So not just petty matters, then. Brother-in-law Jack Lloyd, assault, drunken disorderly and larceny. And Red's brother James was also charged with cattle stealing. Some charges were dismissed, but by the time the family felt it prudent to move away, there had certainly been several convictions and a great deal of trouble surrounding the extended family. It should not be denied that many were at least petty criminals, and Red was probably wise to move out of their orbit if he wanted to keep his head down. Certainly the Kelly name and those of the associated families were not of good reputation in the Wallen beverage area at this time. The move to Avenel away from the Troubles and the police eyes seemed like a sensible thing for the prospects of the whole family. And so to Avenel. 
According to Kelly enthusiast and author Ian Jones, the family seemed to have settled well into their new community there, and the elder children, Annie, Ned and Maggie, were enrolled in the Avenal Common School. They were said to be well-behaved, and attended often enough to gain a rudimentary education. In March of 1864, the visiting school inspector, one Gilbert Brown, recorded that Ned was graded a pass in third-grade reading, writing and spelling. Now, this placed him higher than his 13 classmates in grade 3. I suppose that meant the other 13 all failed reading then. But Ned did join the 11 who failed arithmetic, and all of the class who failed geography and grammar. This was the 1860s NAPLAN test, we assume. (laughs) What a fantastic record to have survived. I'm not sure, though, if this failure reflects a deficit on Ned's part. It might more likely indicate the deficit of teaching quality at the school, seeing as everyone failed. And they were paying each week for this privilege, too. At the time of the inspection, 56 children were enrolled at the Avenal School, but only 39 were in attendance on that day, with Anne Kelly being one of the students absent. Of course, in those days, the elder children were quite often required at home to help look after the younger. Before 1872, there was no compulsory, free and secular education offered by the government. Schools were set up, often by the churches, and fees were charged for attendance. Many poor families enrolled their children in schools, but could not always afford to send them. The Avenal School was on the corner of Watson and Shelton Streets. A Ned Kelly Touring Route information board now marks the site, and includes sketches of the building. The current school at Avenal dates from 1874, with most of the existing buildings constructed in the late 20th century. So no essence of Kelly family is in the remaining buildings. While some sources show the move to Avenal being a happy new start for the Kellys, others claim this period saw Red drinking heavily and the funds from the sale of his assets in Beveridge dissipating fast. Certainly life became more of a struggle there, as these were drought years and the family continued to develop their unfortunate relationship with the law, despite deliberately removing themselves from the corrupting influence of the extended family. I think we can say many family members were highly dodgy, and it's also a fair statement that the Victoria Police Service was not a very professional outfit at this time either. It had been modelled closely on the constabulary of Ireland, so the force came with baggage from the old country. Indeed, 82% of its members came from Ireland, and so were treated with disdain by many of the Irish immigrants, being seen as class traitors and so on. The Royal Commission into the police, held soon after the end of the Kelly outbreak, indicated a substantial level of corruption and ineptitude in the service at that time, which will have added to the lack of respect felt by many of those having to deal with them. Interestingly, Ned was only eight when he first appeared in court as a witness, providing an alibi for his uncle, Red's brother James. In April of 1863, James had been charged with cattle stealing. Witnesses claimed they saw James and an accomplice driving cattle away, but Ned and his mother claimed James was in their home on that evening. He was, however, sentenced to three years' jail. So it remains unclear whether Ned had, at that young age, been coached into lying to the authorities, or whether, stating the truth, he'd just got his first taste of injustice. But we can see that interaction with the police and involvement in the legal system would not have been an unusual part of life for young Kelly. 
The actual facts cannot be known now, but either way, those early experiences would have helped mould Ned's future attitudes towards the law. Alan's father, Jimmy Quinn, while prospering in Wallen, was also becoming increasingly concerned about the behaviour of his sons and the attention they were drawing from the local police. When a neighbour accused Jimmy Jr. of illegally using a horse, that is, the taking of a horse without permission, a sort of milder charge than outright theft, he was sentenced to four months jail. Jimmy Sr. decided to purchase land in the far northeast region and move his sons away from temptation and away from the constant scrutiny of the police. He thought they could help clear the land and run some stock, keeping them busy and hopefully diverting them away from the dangerous path they seemed set on. Fetching a good price for his various properties, James Quinn bought the Glenmore Run on the King River and relocated his family there in July of 1864. Though a large run at more than 20,000 acres, the land was so poor it could only support about 400 cattle, so it was not the good investment he was hoping for after all. Nearby, though, others were doing very well, such as the squatter James Whitty, further down the King Valley. Whitty was one of the most powerful and prosperous gentlemen in the area. Indeed, the area still records many roads and place names containing Whitty or Wit so he and his family certainly had some lasting influence in the region. The Glenmore Run sat astride the mountain stock routes and was used by the infamous Bogong Jack in the 1850s for moving stolen stock up into New South Wales. But their dodgy reputations followed them there. Local police were immediately suspicious of the Quins, believing they'd moved there to conceal criminal activity, and they began watching them soon after their arrival so it was not quite the move into an uncomplicated and trouble-free neighbourhood that James had hoped for either. Nothing remains now to mark the old Glenmore homestead, fires long ago destroying any trace. Though a drive into the King Valley, with all its present-day wineries and beautiful scenery, is still highly recommended, and you can mark the area where the homestead may have stood. It's particularly easy to envisage from Powers Lookout on the Mansfield-Chessant Road. We'll come back to this in more detail in a later episode. Their neighbour, Whitty, would have begun his land holdings as a squatter. Squatters had moved into the northeast to establish stock runs soon after the area was explored by Hume and Hovel around 1827. The local indigenous people from that northeast area were mainly the Wavaru language group, according to the tribal map published by the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. And my apologies there for the potential mangled accent and pronunciation. I haven't actually heard that language group name pronounced. But the government had little concern about the indigenous displacement, and initially they made little effort to manage the land grab by the squatters. Identifying and occupying the best sections of land, squatters ran stock and established homesteads on the regions beyond what the government called the settled districts. During the early days, Victorian land was generally granted to those favoured by the authorities, usually those already involved with the government, or from established families and the like. But squatters initially occupied the wasteland without entering into any formal arrangement with the government hence the term squatters, and they may not have begun as favoured people in the early days. While there was a demarcation between gazetted government land and the official unsettled areas, 
Keeping people out of those unsettled areas at this time was not really policed, because while turning a blind eye and not considering the homelands of the first Australians, the government could have more and more native land turned to productive use, and later they could formalise the arrangement in some way. Those willing to move out into that barely explored country had a tremendous opportunity to build up stock runs for very little outlay, often creating great wealth in a very short period of time. Initially, the squatters around the country, sometimes expired convicts or ordinary free men, did not expect much in recognition or support from the government. The term squatter was initially a derogatory term for those illegally occupying the land. But over time, as the activity and their financial success grew, the whole process sort of developed a kind of respectability, a gentrification. They soon imagined themselves as the homegrown landed aristocracy. By 1836, Governor Burke had made the whole squatting process official. On unoccupied land, so they mean unoccupied by white men, that is, no account was taken of the indigenous groups in the various areas, a squatter could stake his run and register his interest with the lands office. He paid a small annual fee, and provided he cleared the land and ran enough stock to justify the claim, and paid the halfpenny annual fee on each animal, there was no limit to the amount of land that he could occupy. By 1847, an order in council from London was issued giving squatters the means to further formalise the arrangements. Squatters could take 14-year leases and were offered preferential rights to purchase any land they had improved, basically encouraging them to now buy the improved sections of land that they had previously just occupied. But land troubles started later, when the government took more control of the land allocation in these areas and parceled up allotments to meet the demand for land by the growing population. So other newcomers were able to move into the northeast too. Ellen's sisters and their husbands, the Lloyd brothers, took advantage of the new land acts and selected land at rental of two shillings and sixpence per acre, paying it off over eight years. For immigrant working-class people, this was a very attractive idea, something they were unlikely to have been able to do in their old country, and maybe they could join the ranks of the landed in Australia, a sort of higher purchase. But of course, the Australian bush cannot really be compared with the lush Irish landscape, and sadly, for many, their new farms failed to prosper and keep them on the straight and narrow. It's a hard life in the bush if you must do all the work yourself, and soon those Lloyd women were making do in the northeast on their own, while their men were serving jail sentences. Red Kelly had stayed put in Avenal, but the following year, 1865, life was getting tougher for the Kellys there too. Gripped by drought, the author Kelson describes Red killing off his dairy cattle to feed the family and raise much-needed funds. Records show that John Red Kelly himself fell off the straight and narrow wagon, appearing in Avenal Court in May 1865. A wealthy neighbour, Philip Morgan, had accused Red of stealing his heifer calf. Police searched the Kelly house and found ten pound of suspicious salted beef, a hindquarter of fresh beef hanging on a hook, and a dodgy new skin with the brand cut out. Though this did indeed look suspicious, for some reason the cattle-stealing charge was dismissed, but the lesser charge of, quote, having illegally in his possession one cowhide was upheld. 
To avoid this very thing, you were required to keep your cow hides complete with brand intact for verification and proof of ownership. So Red was sentenced to a £25 fine, a massive amount of money, or six months in Kilmore Jail. This was his first charge in court since he was granted his freedom. Perhaps not a bad record amongst a country full of ex-convicts. So I guess it marks some desperation on his part, and it certainly indicates further decline for the family. The drinking seems to have been, by then, very destructive to their prospects. And, I guess the falling prospects drives a man like Red to drink more. Very sad. Why he should turn to theft after all that time and there seemed plenty of evidence he worked hard to make his way up until then, is speculation. Maybe ill health, possibly self-inflicted by his addiction to alcohol, prevented him from earning a living, and necessity forced his hand with his eighth child imminent. Or perhaps the simple temptation of a strayed calf and an easy meal in a time of drought proved too great. But the unfortunate result for him was the same, no matter the motivation. Six months in the lock-up. It's unclear if Red served all of the time in jail, or if Alan was able to pay the fine at some point. £25 equates to several thousand dollars in today's money, and they were unable to be able to raise that if Red was in jail and not working. But the result was that his health went downhill severely during this period, and he was never to recover. And with his health went the family income and prospects. It's probable the kids would have needed to drop out of school, unable to pay the weekly fee, and the older children would need to contribute more to creating some income, Ned undertaking more tasks that a grown man in the family would be responsible for. And then, on August 10th of that year, little Grace was born into the family. For the 11-year-old Ned, two great life events occurred the following year, in 1866, at Avenel. The first occurred when Hughes Creek, running through the centre of town, was in flood following a storm. Somehow, the seven-year-old Shelton boy, son of the owners of the Royal Mail Hotel, slipped from a fallen tree footbridge into the creek while he attempted to cross. Ned saw him fall from the opposite bank, and though probably not a strong swimmer himself, he jumped in and dragged Dick Shelton to safety. Ned's bravery was spoken of throughout the town and the grateful Shelton family commemorated his heroism by publicly presenting him with a green silk sash, seven foot long and five inches wide, with a three-inch golden fringe at each end. No doubt this was a selfless and heroic act which demonstrated not only courage in the young Ned, but a respect for life, empathy and some community spirit qualities which may or may not have stayed with him as he entered his troubled adulthood. His actions at that time, and the accolades and appreciation of the Shelton family and the wider Avenel community, were a significant source of pride for Ned. This may have been his first experience, outside his own family, of positive appreciation. That his community recognised the good in him, and wanted to celebrate that, was obviously a very constructive thing for Ned. The green and gold sash remained one of his most treasured possessions all his life, and amazingly, he was wearing it years later under his armour, during his final confrontation with police at Glenrowan. What this sash meant to Ned is fascinating to consider, 
but it has to be bound up in pride and a feeling of self-worth, maybe along with a feeling of his wider connection to his community, evidenced by the risks he takes to help them. Who knows? But it's quite moving, really. A grown man wearing his childhood reward, his mark of respect at what was to be the most momentous and quite likely fatal confrontation of his life. Anyway, the amazing and now blood-stained Kelly Sash survives, having been souvenired by a policeman at the Kelly's last stand, and later donated to a museum by a descendant. It's usually on display at the Costume and Pioneer Museum in Benalla. A stone bridge from the era remains standing over Hughes Creek at Avenal today, though it no longer carries traffic. A Ned Kelly touring route information board on the southern side of that bridge describes Ned's actions in rescuing Dick Shelton and suggests that the site of the near drowning is about 150 metres downstream. While the Shelton family were obviously extremely grateful to Ned, they were aware that he was no one-sided angelic hero. Jones describes the Shelton family recalling an earlier incident involving Ned when a reward was offered for their missing stallion. Ned returned it to them, claiming he found it up in the bush. (laughs) The horse, though, missing for several weeks, was still in excellent condition, and the Sheltons felt it more likely that Ned had borrowed the horse. (sighs) But, while questionable, they gave him the benefit of the doubt and the modest reward. They were apparently amused that Ned was too much of a horse lover to return it looking shabby which would at least have made his story seem a bit more convincing. Jones also suggests that it was Dick's father who took Ned to the Aboriginal camps nearby and introduced him to their way of life and learning of their skills at tracking, hunting and predicting weather. He believes Ned later mastered some of those skills himself and, because of his respect for their expertise, was concerned years later when black trackers were called in to hunt for his gang fearing that they might be quite capable of tracking the gang through the heavy bush, unlike the inept Irish police. The second momentous and this time directly life-changing event occurred later that same year, when the ailing Red died on December 27th, aged 47 years. Ned, having just turned 12 years old, had the task of reporting his death at the Avenal Police Station. Poor old Red Kelly was buried two days later at the Avenal Cemetery, where a small plaque today marks his grave. So, at 33 years old herself, Ellen was now a widow with seven dependent children, Annie, Ned, Maggie, Jim, Dan, Kate and baby Grace. Twelve-year-old Ned now had to become the man of the family, taking on most of his father's responsibilities in the household. Jones describes Red Kelly as, quote, no great success in life, unquote, but notes that he was remembered with love by his family, and Ned often referred to himself as, quote, Ned Kelly, son of Red Kelly, unquote, surely a mark of great love and respect. Ellen also appears to have been very affected by grief, and sadly, more trouble was coming her way. The following year, Ellen herself was brought before the courts for, quote, using abusive and threatening language, unquote. She was fined 40 shillings and bound to keep the peace. So, by May of that year, struggling to support her young family, Ellen decided to leave Avenal, 
and join her sisters in the northeast where she would at least have the support of her extended family. Though the mouthy Ellen had her troubles with the authorities, in general she appeared to be a popular and well-liked member of the community in Avenal. Fitzsimons, in his 2013 book on Kelly, has locals describing Ellen as, quote, a great horsewoman who used to ride out and help anyone in trouble or needing help, unquote and that her children were well-behaved and Ned brave. So it was a lot to leave behind then, really. But needs must, and off they went to join her sisters in the north-east. Present-day Avenal still has some buildings remaining from the Kelly era, and is a pleasant place to visit and explore, though it has been bypassed by the present-day Hume Highway. The Kelly notice boards there are very interesting and informative. The courthouse and the now-altered police station building are still standing on Queen Street, and there's a Kelly notice board outside the old pub. Red's gravesite can be seen at the Avenal Cemetery, also found on Queen Street, along with the nearby grave of Richard Dick Shelton, who died in 1931 at the age of 73 years. A long life for the era, thanks to Ned for fishing him out of the creek all those years before, How fascinating would it have been to hear what he thought of the Kellys during the outbreak years later. But Avenal's importance as a coach stop on the Sydney-Melbourne route dwindled when the railway came through in the 1870s. So we'll leave the grieving Kelly family there for this week, and I'll be back in a fortnight to talk to you about their move into the northeast of Victoria, now also known as Kelly Country. So I'd like to thank you for joining me again this time and remind you to check for the additional material on the Australian Histories Podcast website at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au You're welcome to contact me from the link there if you have any comments. Take it easy then, and I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Cheers! Cheers!